So this Friday when I was um, supposed to be writing my sermon up here at the church, our family chat was exploding. Like it was going nuts because my daughter's uh, Instagram account got hacked. Um, and somewhere in the world um, was someone's using her account to try and scam people into some cryptocurrency investment scheme of some sort. And so I'm sure you guys have seen this happen. But um, so so for pretty much the entire time I was supposed to be writing, my phone sounded like a very monotone tone version, of course, of the bells um, just kind of dinging away on my desk. Uh, and I'm sure most of you have these now, um, these family. That's the like scam. Your direct deposit of 10,000 USD was, has been received and will be available soon. Yeah, it's a fun thing. So apparently, it looks like a good investment. If you're interested, let me know. I'll, I'll hook you up because the guy put 500 bucks in and got 10 grand. So, you know, that's awesome. What could go wrong? Um, but I'm sure most of you have these now. Um, but Esther and I, my, our 11 oldest kids and their spouses are on one huge textbook thread on Facebook Messenger. Um, and for better or worse, with all the junk that cell phones have brought into our lives, I have to admit, I think the family chat is like one of the net positives. Like it's a, it's a fun thing. Um, ours is crazy. A blend of baby pictures and, and, uh, scheduling calendar events, driving warnings, selfies, exciting life updates, prayers and support hotlines, funny short videos, really inappropriate comments, um, encouragement, sappy love texts. Those are usually from Esther. Um, huge life announcements, silly debates, hilarious memes and gifts, menus for family uh, afternoon lunch, also Esther, um, brainstorms, homework help, boredom management. Uh, we mostly stay away from political debates, praise, praise God. Um, but we do have just about everything else that's going on uh, in our lives. If, does everybody pretty much have a family chat that's like always running? If you don't, I would invite you to mine, but you would totally judge us, and I'm not going to let you do that. Um, because I'm not always proud of what's in ours, but it is, for better or worse, the way we stay connected. Um, and uh, and uh, and the thing I love about Facebook Messenger, the reason we use that, is because you can leave a chat in Facebook Messenger, um, but people can also put you back in. So we have this like running commentary where somebody will say something really stupid, and it'll immediately after I have this little note, Chris has left the chat. Like this is too stupid, I'm out. And so we leave, and then it'll say Esther has put Chris back in the chat. Like it'll say that right, and then she'll like reprimand us. You cannot leave the family chat, you know. Um, and so, and or when someone says something really, you can also kick people out. That's the other fun part. Somebody will say something really stupid, and it'll say like Chris has kicked Samuel out of the chat. Like, and then it'll say Esther has put Samuel back in the chat, and then another reprimand. Um, so that's what makes this one fun. But. uh um, but the, uh, oh my goodness. Uh, but, but I do think it's kind of neat, um, how often you see somebody snap a picture or just something goes on in your life. And the very first thing that comes to mind is, Ooh, I need to put that in the family chat, you know, and you, you just throw it out there for, for everybody to see. In fact, my five-year-old regularly comes up with a dance move or draws a picture or builds something with Legos and he runs to one of his older siblings and says, send this to the family chat. Like he, like he knows what it is. And then exactly three seconds later he starts going, what'd they say? What'd they say? What'd they say? What'd they say? Um, but <laughs> and I can't say, like I said, that I'm always proud of what's in the family, the Heinzelman family chat, but, uh, I can say it's probably the number one way that our family stays connected and informed and just generally feels like we have people, um, and, uh, and we're not alone in this messy life that we have. Uh, and the reason that noisy, distracting phone made it into this morning's message isn't just because I have ADD and I was incapable of writing a sermon and looking at my phone without blending the two. Although now that I say that out loud, that may be exactly what happened. Um, 
but the, the reason uh, I included this is because we're talking about the Godhead this morning. We're talking, we're in a series where we're walking through the Apostles' Creed and our first step in this year-long journey we're calling Core Strength. Uh, and the Apostles' Creed is, is most simply and honestly, profoundly broken into three articles or creed, credos. I credo, I believe, trust, confide in, rely on, have confidence in, and depend on the Father. I credo, believe in, trust, have confidence in, rely on, have confidence in, and depend upon His Son, Jesus. And I credo, believe in, trust, have confidence in, rely on, depend on the Holy Spirit. The creed uh, is evidence that the earliest Christians are the very first people um, to try and make sense out of pretty much the Bible as a whole, the Old Testament, and the letters and historical writings that were becoming the New Testament. That very earliest version of the church was Trinitarian. Um, they believed that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were the single Godhead. Um, and I don't know if they use, if God uses Facebook Messenger to stay connected, but somehow God lives in perfect community uh, and perfect fellowship and relationship for all of eternity. I just assume they use a family chat um, to stay connected. But kidding, I hope you know I'm kidding. Don't send me stuff to tell me that's not the way God works. Um, and the way the earliest believers defined and understood God was in words of function and relationship. They didn't spend much time trying to understand the essence or the very nature of God. They understood Him in terms of how He relates and what He does. Um, We talked last week as we talked about what it means to declare, I believe in God. That the creed defines God by what He does. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, and by who He and how He relates. It says that He's the Father Almighty. The Father is a relational term. We talked about how you, you're only a father when you have a child, when you're in relationship to a child. That is a term that's only defined by relationship. Um, and however that relationship is made, someone is not a father until there's a child. And so that's a relational term that needs a relationship in order to even make any sense or have any existence. So the writers of the creed chose that relational language to define not only the father, but the son, which becomes key As we talk this morning about Article 2 of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus. Article 2 reads like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He will come to judge the living and the dead. So, As we unpack this article um, this week and next, we're going to look at the two different dimensions that the creed um, uses to talk about Jesus, much like we did with the Father. We will talk this week about who Jesus is relationally, primarily that He is God's Son. And then next week we'll focus less on, on who Jesus kind of essentially is. We'll talk more about His function or what He has done for us. Uh, but the, the first thing we, uh, we have to notice right here at the beginning of Article 2 is that the first and primary way that the creed talks about Jesus is not by what he does, but by who he is. And who Jesus is is important. And it does this using relational terms. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus, his only Son. And this idea of understanding someone based on their relationship to others, um, or at least uh, another is growing more and more foreign to us. We're so individualistic and independent that we want to be known on our own terms. 
and, 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 and grounds and merit. And we often overlook how much we are defined and understood only in relationship to others. For instance, you can't know that you're funny other than in relationship. You don't just decide one day that you're funny. Have you ever, know, ever talked to somebody who just decided one day they're funny? Whew, those are hard people to be around. Like, you, you, you find out you're funny when you talk and people laugh. And you're like, oh, that must have hit somebody just right. Like, you, you can only learn that aspect of yourself. Now, some of us just crack ourselves up. Like, sometimes I'll tell a joke, like, to the kids, like one of those dad jokes, and I'm the only one laughing, and boy, I just have a great time with it. And that's fine. Like, but, but for the most part, we actually find out we're funny in relationship. That's how we learn that. That's how you learn that you're, that you're smart. That's how you learn that you're talented. That's how you learn you're attractive is when someone else tells you these things. So the only way that I know that I'm devilishly handsome is so many people tell me. <laughs> My dad used to uh, have this saying, if one person calls you and asks, ignore them. If a second person calls you and asks, you think about it. And then when a third person calls you and asks, you better buy yourself a saddle. Which <laughs> is a funny and old school way of saying... You don't get to decide who and what you are. You learn it from other people. You see yourself reflected in them. And, and the more they give you feedback on who you are, the more you figure out who you are. We're known, we exist, our personality only exists in relationship to others. And this is a problem in our world right now. When everyone wants to throw off culturally understood relationships and definitions that have served both the individual and society to help us understand who we are. And now it doesn't matter how many people tell you who you are, what science tells you who you are, or what every anatomy book on the planet tells you who you are. We now decide for ourselves what we are, and and this isn't just a problem because it affects how we dress or where we go to the bathroom. Honestly, those don't even matter. It's a problem because the God of the universe in whose image we are made doesn't just exist unto himself. He exists in relationship to others in the Godhead. The God of the universe never existed singly. He always existed in relationship and communion with others in in such a way that the the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They, they They are defined by their relationship to others, and that's immutable and unchangeable. And those are the terms that God has revealed himself unto us, and we don't get to redefine that. And if we can't understand on the most basic level that some things are this and some things are that, um, and they must be taken on those terms, I think it greatly affects our ability to, to exchange and know the God of the universe. For the, at least in the way that the scripture presents him to be. Um, which I think is one of the reasons we tend to make God into whatever we want him to be. And it's also why I think the creeds are so important in a world that is changing so fast that, that it can be really easy to lose track of the truths that have, been, that have been in place from the very beginning. And the Apostles' Creed especially serves as kind of an anchor to where no matter how much uh, the world feels like it's throwing us all over the place, I always have this picture of a ship you know, in a storm, and it feels like you're getting thrown all over the place, and the church is just changing so fast, and everything's changing. And, and as long as we have that anchor holding us in one place, which is the Creed's, we don't really move much. So Jesus is first understood simply by that deep relational term, Son of God, where he can only be known in his relationship to another. And I wish we could, we could take that statement as simply as we took the statement, I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth. 
Um, because honestly, I believe in God for me is the easy one. It feels like, like doing a puzzle. Any, any puzzle people in here? Anybody like puzzles? You know that feeling when you're looking for a piece for a long time and you find it and it clicks into place and it is like an itch to a scratch in your soul. Like, ah, oh, like it clicks in. Like I put them in like hard when I find one. It's like pop. And the kids are like, why do you do that so aggressively? I'm like, cause it feels so good. Like to find that puzzle piece the way it's supposed to fit. It's perfect. Anyone else? Anyone else get that like deep soul satisfaction when you put a puzzle piece in? Believing in God is like that for me. It's, it, I have all these questions, these things that don't make sense in the universe. Like we talked about last week, I have trouble finding meaning and purpose in the vastness of, of, of everything that is. And, and yet almost like I, I bear the image of something much greater than me. I sense that there is something deep. And then all of a sudden I find God and the God that's revealed in Scripture and it's like a puzzle piece in my soul just like clicks and it's like, ah, oh, that's, that's why everything is the way it is. And it, and it feels good um, when everything clicks into place. Understanding the Son of God is a little more challenging. It's a little more complex, if no less rewarding. But right here in the opening lines of this article of the Creed, before we dive into the function or activity of the Son of God, we have a couple really difficult realities about Jesus' nature to wrestle with. Because it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And here's where we dive into the nitty-gritty. I hope you can see the tension here. Jesus is God's Son, eternal and divine, and 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 would be expected to, 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 of the honest goodness of the Son of the Maker of heaven and earth, we would expect Him to be divine. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Divine. But, born of a human woman. So God, always God, from the beginning God, conceived by God, but also human, made of flesh and bone, bled, bled, bled when He was stabbed, human. And this is a little more to unpack, right? And before we get into why this language was so important to the writers of the first century, I do want to point out um, that the tension of this, the the tension of this statement that God is both God, Jesus is both God and human, was the subject matter of the very first real church theological struggle. Like the real first theological controversy was over this, the nature of Jesus. The, the being both God and human and how to understand and, and wrestle with that was the very first real deep theological controversy. As soon as the persecution on Christians was lifted by Constantine and the church leaders had the luxury of getting together so they could debate and study and kind of the entire scripture together and wrestle with fervently with what exactly it meant to, to believe in Jesus, um, being both God and man, they got stuck on this for a long time. And the reason they, they took this so seriously was not just because it's a hard thing to figure out. I mean, it is. But the context of their debate was actually quite a bit more complicated than ours, believe it or not. Because in the first century, when the Apostles' Creed was written, Jesus was by no means the only Son of God. In fact, the concept of a leader being the Son of God was fairly common. And so, so the, the writers of the creed chose their language very specifically. Let me explain. When Jesus steps into the human story in, in the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, there are basically two types of Son of God on the planet. There was the demigod, 
right, which we're all pretty familiar with these, which was already kind of beginning to slip into myth by the first century. But um, but the when the Apostles' Creed was written, but the Romans had, you know, Achilles and Dionysus and Hercules. Basically, these beings were a rogue Olympian would come down and mate with a human woman um, or a human man, I guess. And the, the reason um, the the wording of the creed is so specific um, is because they create a clear distinction between what they were saying about Jesus and what anybody might say about a demigod from the Greek and Roman mythology. Because the nature of God himself is defined in the in the text. And so that defines what it would mean to be God's son. In Hellenistic mythology, the gods of Olympus weren't the makers of heaven and earth. In fact, their parents from whom they came, the Titans, weren't even the makers of heaven and earth. And so when you make a statement that God is the maker of heaven and earth and Jesus is his only son, you're not putting him down with the demigods like Hercules. You're putting him up above the Titans. You know, so, in, so they chose that language very specifically. God, the maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus is only son, our Lord. He was lifting, they were lifting Jesus with that language clear out of the realm of Greek mythology and putting him far above anything that the Greeks ever claimed. So to a Roman citizen, to hear the, the creed, they would have automatically recognized you're not talking about a demigod here. You're not talking about Hercules or Achilles here. You're talking about the maker of heaven and earth who is far above the Titans, who by then were, you know, far above the Olympians um, and his son. So way above. So Jesus was was higher than the Titans um, and definitely above Zeus and any, because they never claimed to make heaven and earth. Now, the language of the creeds, when it was first written, never could be confused with demigods. So that was important to them to, to, to word this in a way that you don't think I'm talking about this, the children of God that you guys are talking about. I'm talking about something totally different, which leaves the second kind of son of God, which was way more recent in the time of Jesus. And it's called the imperial cult. When Julius Caesar died, declare Rome, Rome declared him a, a to be divine, a, a child of the gods, um, which seemed pretty harmless since he was dead. Um, but officially with Emperor Augustus, these claims uh, began to be said about the emperor himself while he was alive. Uh, that, Ju- that because Julius had chosen him as his heir and Julius was divine, now worshiping Augustus um, makes sense too. He's divine also. And it was actually illegal to worship Augustus in Rome, but in the rest of the empire you were kind of expected to, um, to worship the, the emperor as a son of God. Then when Augustus died, his closest aides said that they saw his spirit go up into Olympus. And, uh, and so it was clear that his entire line from, from Julius down to Augustus, now to Tiberius, um, was a divine line. And so they were all called sons of God. But here's the deal. Caesar's parents, both parents, were well-known and noted. Augustus' parents were both well-known and noted. Tiberius's parents were both well known and noted. In other words, when the Roman people referred to the emperors as divine, they were speaking of a divinity that was bestowed upon these people. Um, and and but their origins were completely human. They knew who their human father was, who their human mother was. They were completely human. Human dad, human mom, born human, raised human, everything normal until they assumed the throne. And upon that, then they kind of got this divinity bestowed on them. So when a Roman referred to the emperor as the son of God, they were talking, uh, taking all that into account. This is a normal human who took a divine throne and by doing that became some kind of divine. So when the writers of the Apostles' Creed first claimed that Jesus was the only son of the maker of heaven and earth, 
That's huge, because that's putting him far above any Greek mythology. They were placing him in an infinitely higher position than any, any demigod that might be called a son of God in Greece um, or early Rome. And when they said that he was conceived by God, that's such an important phrase in the creed, because they're saying he is nothing like the imperial cult, who were born of a human dad, human mom, you know, totally human, and then had some divinity bestowed on them. Um, they're, they're saying, no, 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 this is God who was, who was conceived by God. Completely and utterly different. He's nothing like the emperors who were all too human, no matter what ruling title they held. And in 200, when the creed first shows up, you know, in you, when we first read about the creed being in use, we know it was in use long before that, but the very first time we read about it being in use, this was enough to set Jesus apart from everything. Like, just to make that statement, everybody knew what you were saying. Everybody knew that you were saying he's far above any demigod, he's far above any emperor. Like, the language they chose in that day would have spoken that Jesus is God. Like, it would, that he was divine. Any other person, dead or alive, can come nowhere close to that. But a couple hundred years later, when the imperial cult had basically crumbled and, that, and the, the, the term son of God had kind of taken on way less meaning in the world, um, the, the, church, uh, the church leaders at that time needed to further define what that meant. So they decided, you know, now we need those definitions worked in 100, 200. Now we need a little more definition. So they, they in the Nicene Creed, um, which offers a little more definition without contradicting anything in the Apostles' Creed, um, they actually said this about Jesus. Uh, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, so I, we believe in God and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. So that's that's how they chose to say what was kind of automatically said in the Apostles' Creed, but understood in, in its cultural context. Now they were like, in this cultural context, we need a little more definition. We need to clarify what we mean by that. And it's important to note that the early church fathers were, for all intents and purposes, holding the Bible in one hand, and the Apostles' Creed in the other hand. And they were trying to make sense out of how do we, how do we define this for our time. Uh, and they were making these clarifying statements about Jesus because they knew that the first century, um, saying that Jesus was the son of the maker of heaven and earth, um, was all you needed. And that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit was all you needed to say to, 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 to find this amazing nature of this person we worship. But as cultural context changed, the creed didn't need to change. It just needed more clarification. So... They took what would have been easily understood in 100, 200, um, and they gave it language that it needed in 325 um, when they started wrestling with it in 450 by the time they kind of finished up the version of the Nicene Creed that we have today. Um, but what's most important is that the leaders of the church in 1 or 200 came to the exact same conclusion um, with whatever revelation of God they had available to them um, that the church fathers 300 years later, 200 years later, came to when, once they had the full Bible in front of them. And that is that Jesus is both divine God, eternal and immutable, and he's human. Exactly like us, other than never sinning. And I've heard some really fun, oftentimes helpful metaphors uh, and, and descriptions of how this can be. But I will not cheapen um, the mystery of Jesus' nature by trying to shrink it into something 
that can fit in our human reason and logic. I don't like doing that. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, it's like this. It's kind of like if you had this. See, it's still the original thing, but now it's also a new thing. I won't do that because I think it's supposed to be mysterious. I think it's supposed to be big. And if I can shrink it down to something we can understand, I think it cheapens it. Instead, I just want to look at what the Bible says about Jesus. We know what the creed says, but let's look at at what the Bible says, and then we'll just um, be left with nothing else other than to ask that question. Credit us in Jason. Do you believe in Jesus? Because that's all we can do is hand you the Jesus that the Bible says is, and then we get to choose whether or not we believe. The Bible says this, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. He created everything through Him. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. So the word became human and made his home among us. This is obviously the word in this passage talking about Jesus. The word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father, uh, the Father's one and only Son. You can hear the language echoed in the creeds that they were using this passage when they, when they wrote some of this. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. That's a direct, the, it feels like the creed writers took that straight out of John. So we can see how the writers of the Apostles' Creed are, are content to assume um, what is meant when we say, I believe in Jesus, God's uh, Son, our Lord. And the writers of the Nicene Creed felt obligated to include a little more um, of that same exact passage. The Word became flesh and, and was with God, and it was God. The Nicene Creed They're not just making up deeper language. They're going deeper into that same passage that the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God and was there when everything that was created, uh, when everything that is was created. The church fathers chose the Latin word homoousios, if you want a fun word for today. Homoousios, of the exact same nature, of the exact same essence. Homo essence, one essence, the, the same exact essence of God to explain this nature that Jesus had. And John clearly came to this conclusion because it was the only conclusion that someone who, who spent time listening to Jesus could come to. One day, Philip, who clearly wasn't getting it, asked Jesus um, to create some distinction between him and the Father. Like, like, show us the Father. We've got to know you now. Show us the Father. And he asked Jesus to, to, to separate himself from the Father so they could understand who the Father was. And, and it says this, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you this, uh, all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show, you, show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father's who lives in me, and he does his work through me. And I can read a dozen more passages, but, but Jesus clearly taught the same truth about himself that the creeds offer us. And that's that he is the only son of God. He and God are one. And the disciples picked up on that. Thomas, um, after seeing Jesus' wounds, had only one response. The only thing he had to say was, my Lord and my God. So the very earliest Christians declared Jesus to be God without reservation. And it was taught in the very first letters written about Jesus, long before 
any of these letters were canonized as Scripture, long before the Gospels were written about Jesus, Paul wrote to the Corinthians um, this. He said, but for us, there is one God, the Father, uh, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. So right off the bat, some of the earliest letters in the church, they're talking about Jesus as God. And by no means was this late, some late adaptation um, influenced by Greek and Roman fascination with demigods and, and cults of personality. These are not Greek philosophers writing. These are Jewish writers making sense not only of the life of Jesus, but of prophecies that had been written hundreds of years earlier. The prophet Isaiah said this, For a child is born unto us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will, be never, will, will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. So way back before there was a Greek philosopher, you got this guy saying a man is coming who will be, who will be born to us as a son, as a child, and we'll call him God. He will be the mighty God. So you have Jewish writers listening to the testimony of Jesus and, and witnessing not only his life and his deeds, but his death and resurrection and making sense of prophets like Isaiah from a long time ago. And they're coming to the natural conclusion that Jesus is the very eternally existent God. And from day one, the very first churches and church letters, this is taught. Never was there a time that the church did not see Jesus as God. So when the, when the writers of the Apostles' Creed were baptizing early disciples, they had no trouble asking, do you believe in Jesus, the Son of God who made everything? And they would dunk them. But that's only half the story, right? Because of Mary. Darn that Mary. And I know Protestant, as Protestants we're all afraid of the Catholic Marian theology, so we really kind of shy away from talking about her too much at all. But she is absolutely essential to the full understanding of who Jesus is and, and what it means to believe in Jesus because Jesus had a mom. A real mom. That means he had an umbilical cord and drew sustenance from Mary's body. He had, he had a birth and amniotic fluid and diapers and he nursed and teethed and learned to walk. I have no idea what it's like to have a, a sinless toddler because all my kids come out just wicked sinners and they know how to sin right off the bat. They all take after their mom. Just born to sin. <laughs> so I don't know how a toddler who has no sin acts, but all the natural things like learning to use utensils and getting most of the food on his face instead of his mouth and, and, and all of that potty training, learning the cow say moo and dog say roof. All that had to be taught. I had this thing when my oldest was little that I taught him. When I was teaching him animal sounds, I would go, what's a bear say? Or a lion. What's a lion say? Rawr. What's a dog say? Roof, roof. What's a pig say? What's mom say? Rawr. Like it, I'd do it for everybody. It was awesome. Anyway, all the human stuff. That wasn't in my notes. Um would have had to have been learned just like every other human. Jesus was fully human. As a man, the Bible says that Jesus got hungry and thirsty. He got excited when, when good things happened. He cried for his friends. 
He got tired and slept. He moved through time like everyone else to the point that there were uh, multiple times that he was late. He was going to go heal a girl once and he promised the dad he would do it and he got caught up talking to a woman who had touched his robe and gotten healed. And despite people urging him to move it along, he, he stayed and listened to her whole story and the girl died. And awkward, but luckily he was able to resurrect her instead of healing her, so that's super cool. He had options. <laughs> but de- Jesus didn't get to just freeze time like a god and, and move through time differently. He had to deal with time the way, the way we do. He got chewed out one time when, he, when he, he left a place late and showed up late and his best friend died. And, and the, the Lazarus' sister was chewing Jesus out. If you'd, if you'd hurried up and gotten here, maybe you could have done something. And of course, he did another resurrection. It would be really cool if I could do stuff like that. The people that are like always mad that I'm always late, if I could just like do a cool miracle when I got there, I think they'd be all right. Anyway. But maybe the, the two most pro- profound pieces of evidence of Jesus' obvious humanity are one, this... Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 42 days, or 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people don't live by bread alone, but by every mouth that comes from, every word that comes from God's mouth. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And said, if you are the Son of God, jump off. For the Scriptures say, He will order His angels to protect you. And they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the Scriptures also say, you must not tempt the Lord thy God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the Scriptures say you must uh, worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. And the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. In this story, Satan challenges uh, Jesus and it's, and it's an incredibly important moment in Jesus' life where, where God says to Jesus, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Right before the story, Jesus gets baptized. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan challenges that divinity with the most human thing possible. He tempts him. He, he, he puts temptation in front of him. The Bible tells us Jesus was tempted. And, and, and the way he tempts him is, is twisted and it's good. He basically says, if you really are God's son, stop acting human. Act like God. Do God things. Stop acting like a human. And, and what a twisted temptation this is because by tempting Jesus and, and telling him to act like God... He, he's revealing Jesus' humanity because the most human thing Satan tempts us with is to try to do God things. That's the core of what it means to be tempted. Is, is Satan comes and says, act like God. Take it in your own hands. Do God-level stuff. There's nothing more human than being tempted to act like God. Look around our world today. Look at politics. Look at medicine. Look at technology. Look at science, engineering, agriculture, for crying out loud. Humans are playing God all over the place. We're trying to do God-level things, pretending like we are gods and, and, and basically what it means to be human, and Satan knows how to tempt humans, is to say, act like God. 
pretend like there is no other authority other than you. Like, like go, go try and do God-level things. Satan's had a lot of experience at this. If you really want to tempt a human, get him to act like God. And that's exactly what he tempts Jesus with. Jesus faces Satan's temptation as a human, and he passes those temptations as a human. And the earliest writers picked up on this aspect of Jesus' nature. It says this, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what, to, to what we believe. This high, priest of our under, uh, this high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings, that's that word temptation, as we do. Yet he didn't sin. Whatever we face as a human, we can't go... God doesn't get it. He's not a human. We don't get to say that anymore. But the second most profound piece of evidence that of Jesus' humanity is this. By this time, it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle and Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with these words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowds that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him to Gal- from Galilee, stood at a distance Watching. Jesus died. He died. And there's nothing more human than that. The Word that was from the beginning, the Word that was with God and was God, died. And this is the Jesus that the Apostles' Creed invites us to believe in. And as I said, I don't intend to spend time trying to minimalize that down to a metaphor or a word picture. To make it more palatable to us. Because the creed doesn't. The Apostles' Creed is bold-faced. I believe in Jesus, who is the Son of the Maker of everything. Who's divine and, and conceived by the Holy Spirit. And who had a human mom. Mary. And the purpose of the creed is not to trivialize Jesus to something palatable but rather to introduce you to the most unique, most profound, most beautifully different, and yet utterly accessible person in the universe. Next week we're going to focus on on what this Jesus did for us and what his life and death means to us. But the creeds start with not just believing in what Jesus did, but who he is. And he is fully God and fully man. And to be a believer in Jesus is to believe that. So how do we respond to this? Last week, Esther and I had uh, dinner with a, a pastor couple that we've known for about 25 years, but we just kind of recently rekindled a friendship with them. And, and it's weird because we really hadn't kept in, in close contact uh, over the years, just little blurbs of conversation here and there, but nothing real deep. And Mandy, the wife, 
um, had heard me speak a couple times and knew that I like to kind of think deeply and mess with the way other people think. And, and, uh, uh, and so she knew that her husband likes to do those things too. So you could tell she kind of like pigeonholed me. Oh, he's just like Jared. That kind of put me in that category that I'm just like her husband. You know, they, they both talk similar. They, they, they're, and he's kind of immature and goofy. So that fit too. Like she was like, Oh, he's just like my husband. So she kind of, you could tell she immediately pigeonholed me into this. The, the correlation was understandable. And then partway through the evening, we mentioned that we have rabbits. And, and she was like, oh, yeah, I've always wanted pet rabbits. To which I immediately go, well, they're meat rabbits. And she like choked on her food a little bit. I'm sorry? And I was like, I mean, we're not going to eat the three we have, but we're going to eat their babies. Like, we, we raise them for, for meat. And, she, and you, you can see, like, she started getting green, you know. And I went on to explain, oh, if you come to our house, you might get antelope, you might get deer, you might get elk, you might get a cow that got hit by a car that we butchered ourselves. You never know what, you, what you're going to eat at our house. And, like, she kind of put her fork down. I think I'm done. Um, and a few minutes later, I confessed that I, you know, I'm an empathetic crier. I cry like a baby all the time, and it drives me nuts that I can't, you know, say anything emotional without getting choked up and, and, uh, and that, uh, I have a voracious love for reading theology and philosophy and history and really cheesy fiction. I love fiction. Uh, and then minutes later, I'm talking about MMA and how I had a, you know, I taught a Bible study at my son's fight club for a year and a half and where we talked about Jesus and then we punched each other for like a couple hours. And, and, uh, and you could tell by the end of this meal, she was like, I have no idea where to put you. Like, <laughs> I thought I knew who you were. I don't have a clue. Like, and the, and the funniest part of the evening was just watching her move me from this, oh, you're just like my husband, to like, you're an alien. Like, I don't even know what you are. Um, and, and granted, I'm pretty eclectic and, and, and have a lot of different interests and tastes, but I am easy to figure out compared to Jesus. And the creed does not ask us to understand Jesus. Nowhere does the Apostles' Creed state, I, I get it. I understand his humanity and divinity. I, I, I comprehend Jesus, the Son of God, maker of heaven and earth. No, that's not what it says. It doesn't offer that. The, the earliest Christians were less interested in our understanding and far more interested in our commitment. We've been stressing this word every week, the, the word that the writers of the creed chose, a credo. I believe, trust, confide in, rely on, have confidence in, depend on. And that is how we respond to this message. The Bible makes it very clear Jesus is God, fully God. And He's human, fully human. Deal with it. I, I, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's, not our, it's our job to believe that, to trust in it, to, have, to confide in it, to rely on it, to have confidence in it, to depend on it. Because here's the deal. If Jesus is not these things, then the Bible is wrong and we're all lost. Period. We cling to these truths. Because they are what bring us life, period. One day Jesus said some really hard things and some people that had been following him left because of it. And Jesus looks at his disciples, like looks at the twelve and goes, you guys leaving too? And I, I love this. and Because and, Peter, here's what Peter says. Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. And I love that answer. Because it's the right answer. It, it is hard to understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. Yes, but to whom else are we going to go? He's got the words of eternal life. 
And that's the way the, the, the creed comes to us. Like, I'm not asking you to understand it. I'm not asking you to, to, to be able to communicate or to even get it. I'm asking you to believe it. I'm asking you to, to bet your life on it, to depend upon it. Because these give the words of life. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is to simply invite you to believe something that I haven't even remotely tried to explain to you. And I invite you to believe the Bible because those are the words that give eternal life.